comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 6 and 7, and can be found on page 870 of your Pew Bible. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked. And there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth, to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They call to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. 
Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of eternal water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. May God bless the reading of his word. Just before we go into this text, I wanted to add a footnote to the sharing from the New York City team. One of the pastors from that church was a seminarian who served here for three years, Aaron Chan. Aaron and Connie, and their, they had a child while they were here. I did, I had a great ministry here, and he's kept in touch with me over the years. So when our team got done, uh, came back from New York City this year, he gave me a call just to say how positive an experience it was for him and his church and how well they'd done. And particularly above, you know, he mentioned uh, Minister Jen and uh, Seminarian Stan. And then the, the youth as a whole, what a good team they had had. Now, this summer we had a number of teams go out, and we try to find time in each service to hear from one of the teams now, one person we haven't been able to hear from yet is Patek, who went to Uganda. Now, her experience there ties much more closely to this scripture passage than our experience. So I've asked her to come this morning to share something about the story she heard in Uganda. This is not really about her trip in particular, but about some of the experiences she heard from the Ugandans as an introduction to the passage this morning. So as Pastor Chuck mentioned, I spent five weeks this summer in Uganda, and 
the last two weeks that we spent there, we spent up in the northern city of Gulu, which is where um, many of the LRA attacks were hardest hit. The LRA stands for the Lord's Resistance Army, and it's a guerrilla army that's led by Joseph Kony. And from the time of 1987 to 2004, over 20,000 children were abducted from their homes, and over 100,000 civilians were slaughtered. And so as we were in Gulu, and as we were going around and visiting people in their huts and hearing their life stories, um, some of the things that we got to learn were from some of the former child soldiers that we met. Um, They would tell us stories of what it was like for them day in and day out of living in the bush, of crying every single night, praying that God would be their strength, that they wouldn't be hungry, showing us the scars on their bodies of where they would get slashed and tortured if they complained, and watching their friends murdered in front of their eyes. And yet, even through all of this, they would keep constantly saying, but praise God, he sustained me, but praise God, he gave me the strength. And the verse that many of them quoted was Isaiah 43.2. And they said during their time in the war, it's they understood the truth. So Isaiah 43.2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And for them, they realized the truth that even in the midst of the torture and torment, that God was still with them. And that was a testament for many of us. In particular, I got close to a man named Aaron. He was another staff worker from Uganda. And he grew up in a village right outside of Gulu. And he would share stories of how many of the people in his village were not there. And tears would come to his eyes when we came back to Gulu because he was like, this is the first time in 10 years that I've seen people walking on the streets during the day. And he shared stories of how his older sister had been abducted when she was nine and on her way of coming home from school. And for his family, they didn't know what would happen. They didn't know if they would come back and be attacked because oftentimes the places that they went to first were the families of the children they abducted to slaughter the rest of the family. Um, So for him, he just constantly was praising God, and his strength and faith and joy was a blessing for many of us because, as Pastor Chuck shared, we haven't experienced this kind of life. And so to be challenged of what does it mean to hold on to God in the midst of that? The turning point for Uganda was when the pastors around the nation gathered together and said, this must stop. Our God is greater than this war, and so we must come together and pray. And so they went and visited many of the places where initiation happened, and they started just praying and worshiping to God and breaking the altars that had been set up by Joseph Kony. And at the same time, Joseph Kony turned to his army and said, I no longer can hear from the spirits where the Ugandan army is coming from. I can no longer protect you. We must flee. And so at the same time that the church was coming together to intercede on behalf of the children and the nation, asking God to step in, for them, they saw this as a turning point of, our God has the power of Christ to save lives, both physically and spiritually. So that's just a glimpse of some of what other people have experienced that relates a bit to what we're sharing today. Uh, We'll have opportunity in some time at some point in the future to hear more generally about Patek's trip. But this really, this piece of it relates to the text in front of us this morning. With Revelation chapter 6, we begin to get into the core, the famous part of the book of Revelation. For those of you who don't usually come here and are here this morning, 
uh, we, our pattern is to take a book of scripture and then preach from the beginning to the end. And so, what we've looked at so far, Revelation 2 and 3 has been the Paul, um, John's letters to the churches in ancient Asia Minor. Chapter 4 and 5 was basically a, a window opened on heaven where the believers and the angels are gathered to worship God. But chapter 6 begins the famous part of Revelation. The part that's made into movies, the parts that made into best-selling books. It begins all these visions. Uh, you know, four, four different colors of horses. And the phenomena that the horses unleash. And from here until basically the end of Revelation is full of wild pictures of fantastic events that happen in the world. Cataclysmic events. Earth-shattering events. Now, this part of Revelation, most of Revelation, poses a problem for us as we try to read it and understand it. Because we're not used to this kind of literature. This is not a genre that's common in our experience. But a lot of people read it without realizing this is a different kind of literature than what we're used to. They read it just like it's any kind of other historical work. So, uh, you know, as we came into the year 2000, maybe some of you are old enough to remember the year 2000 and, and the lead into 2000. And, you know, uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins published a series of maybe 12 books, 14 books, I think there was a couple of sequels, about the end times and what the end times would be about, would be like. And they had, this is a fictitious novelistic account of the coming end times. And they sold millions of copies of this book. People were fascinated with what might happen as the year 2000 approached. The problem with it is, they read Revelation as if it was a literal description of historical, coming historical events. And it's not that kind of genre. I, I illustrate. You know, Tim LaHaye came to this party late. He wrote these 12 or 14 books with Jerry Jenkins, but he, went to the, he came to the party late. In the 1960s, there was a guy named Hal Lindsey who wrote a book like this. And in the 1960s, because you had the specter of the Cold War, we didn't know if we were going to be bombed into oblivion by the Soviet Union, you know, nuclear annihilation. So people were kind of on edge. And then Hal Lindsey came out with this book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And I don't suppose any of you are old enough to remember that, or not many of you anyway. But the late great planet Earth was sold so widely that it was, at the time, the best-selling, non-fiction English book in history. Well, second to the Bible. In the 60s, only the Bible had sold more copies than Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth. And he did the same thing that Tim LaHaye did 20 years later. He read Revelation as if it was a dispassionate historical account of events that were yet to happen at the end of time. He read it like it was a news report. I'll give you one example from that. You know, He had this theory. Uh, one of the 
country, one of the people groups in, mentioned in Daniel, maybe it's Daniel, it was called Rosh, and he said, well, Rosh, that sounds like Russia. So he said, well, what's going to happen is Russia's going to invade, um, I mean, Western Europe, and there was a ten, and Revelation has ten horns on this beast, and he says, well, that's the common market, and the common market only has eight countries now, but it's going to have ten countries, and when it gets to ten countries, then, then Russia's going to invade the Middle East, and there's going to be a worldwide conflagration, the whole thing is going to melt down, and then the, Jesus is going to come back. Maybe by the 80s. Trouble is, Rush has nothing to do with Russia. It didn't mean that at all. But, but I read this and I thought, well, this is, you know, a Bible teacher. This is a tr- book. It must be true. It's kind of like in the old days. If I read it on the Internet, it must be true. In the old days, I read it in a book. It must be true. So I told my friends at university, you know, the common market's only eight countries. Now it's going to get to be ten countries. And then Jesus is, and then the Russians are going to invade the Middle East. And then Jesus is going to come back. And, and so my, you know, my friends weren't Christians. And they thought, oh, well, oh, hmm, all right. Then the common market, you know what happened? Got to be ten nations. And my friends said, whoa, Chuck is right. Maybe Jesus is coming back soon. And then you know what happened. The common market got to be 11 nations. And then 12 nations. And then 17 nations. And whatever it is now. You know, and, and so we read this thing. We don't pay attention to the genre. We just read it as if it's describing future events. And we read our interpretation into it. Now here's a funny thing. It's, it's not just the 1960s and the year 2000. Here's a book... Uh, the last days are here again. Huh? The last days again? So this author traces reports of the last days ever since about the year 200. There was a lot around the year 1000, expectations of Jesus coming back, and a lot again around 2000, but all throughout history, people have been anticipating the last days, and often they fastened on Revelation as a prediction of what's going to happen in the future what those last days are going to be like. I remember meeting, uh, some of you would know the name Elizabeth Elliot. Her brother was David Howard. I met him in Singapore, a famous leading evangelical. He was describing for me how disturbing it was for him to wake up in the year 1939. As a child, he woke up January 1st, 1939, very discouraged, disappointed, and troubled in faith. Because as World War II approached, as the chaos developed in Europe, and Americans were anticipating World War II expanding, he'd been listening to his pastor and to preachers, using revelation to predict the end of the world, and he did not think he'd live to see January 1st, 1939. Jesus was going to come back. Revelation proved it. You see, people read this without regard to genre as if it's a newspaper report of the events that are going to come at the end of time. It's not written that way. It's not meant to be that. This is a genre, you can look it up on Wikipedia. This is a genre called uh, apocalyptic. I won't go into it a lot. But if you look at the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, or look at the book of Zechariah, not now but later on, look at the book of Ezekiel, or in the Gospels, Look at Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 5. Look at Mark 13. Throughout scripture, there's a recurring genre called apocalyptic. And the main idea of apocalyptic is this. God's people are in crisis. 
They're longing for his deliverance. And the word of God comes to them and says, there's going to be a massive destruction and deliverance. Your enemies are going to be destroyed and God is going to deliver you. And it's going to be massive. And they use this end of the world language, stars falling from the sky, uh, the sun darkening. All it's doing is using end of world terminology to say a crisis is coming that's going to punish your opponents and deliver you. And when Jesus talked this way in Matthew 24 to 25, mainly what he was talking about was the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Mostly, this is not, a little bit, it could be about the end of time, but mostly this is about what happened in the past, our past. Mostly, this was written to the people of its day. How does Revelation, the book of Revelation, begin? Revelation 2 and three, two to 3. Remember the seven churches? John writes to seven churches that are undergoing persecution. Here's the thing. If you find something in Revelation that the original recipients of this book could not understand, you're probably not finding something that was there. You're probably finding something that was not there, not intended. This book was written to churches in ancient Turkey suffering under persecution. It's a message, first of all, for them, about them, about their time. It's about their persecutors, the Roman Empire. It's about their fate as Christian churches. What will happen to them? Revelation is predominantly not about the end of time. A little bit of it toward the end will be about the end of time. But mostly it's this. It's a message to God's people in their suffering as they suffer. Secondarily, it's a message to us. But primarily, it's a message to them. I'll give you one more illustration about how genre, misunderstanding genre can influence things. I'm not even old enough to remember this, but I've read about it. There was a radio program, Orson Welles, Halloween 1938. He read a sci-fi drama over the radio called War of the Worlds. And it was about the invasion of Martians into New Jersey, a fictitious town of Grover's Mill, New Jersey. The, the, the Martians were invading New Jersey. Now, I'll resist jokes because I know some of you are from New Jersey. And some of you take my comments seriously when they really, really want them to be jokes. But moving on. Now, before they said it, before the radio show started, uh, Orson Welles or, had gotten hold of tapes, real actual tapes of the crashing of the Hindenburg, the Hindenburg disaster. He got news reports of a actual disaster and said, look, this is how I want it performed on the radio. I want it performed like it really feels like a disaster. But before they began the show, they said, this is dated 1939, i.e. a year ahead. They warned people ahead before the show started. They warned people occasionally in the show that this is just a, a fictitious account. But people didn't, some people missed those warnings. And so as people listen to the radio, this fictitious account of the invasion from Mars People thought New Jersey was being invaded by Martians. 
People were calling up the radio stations, calling up the police, calling up the uh, authorities for fear that the world was ending. One radio uh, announcer assured his callers, he said, I've never lied to you. The world is not ending. And they accused him of a cover-up. There was a storm brewed because people didn't pay attention to genre. They thought they were really being invaded. They didn't think they were just hearing a amusing radio show. So really, genre matters. This is a genre of apocalyptic. God speaks to his people in this text. God speaks to us through this text. But mainly, he's not telling us about the end of the world. Mainly, he's telling us about the kind of situation that Patek described. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 6, page 870 in your Bible. Look particularly. We'll start. This is not, this narrative is not in order. He, he has four seals and then the fifth seal. And really, the crucial issue comes out in the fifth seal. So take a look. We'll start at Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. See how this, develop, how this opens up. When he opened up the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, this is a picture of heaven and a heavenly altar in the temple of God in heaven. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. He saw the spirits of dead Christians. They'd been slain because they stood for God and they gave testimony to Jesus and they'd been executed by the Roman government. And in this vision, he saw these souls at the foot of the altar. And these souls called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? How long are you going to let the Romans keep killing Christians? How long, O Lord? That's the question that Revelation is asking. How long are you going to let this keep happening? We testify to you. We stand for you. We refuse to worship the emperor. We worship God alone. We stand for the name of Jesus. And we're being killed. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants? That was the question that the all of Revelation is about. That's the question the churches were asking in Revelation 2 and 3. These seven churches in ancient Turkey, they were being oppressed. They had two choices. Either compromise and worship the emperor or die. Either offend God and eventually go to hell or offend the emperor and be killed. Those were their choices. And in the midst of the suffering, they cry out, How long? The martyrs cry out in the, from the heaven, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? It's the same kind of question that could have been asked, presumably was asked, by these Christians whose parents were killed or whose children were kidnapped by this blasphemous LRA in Uganda. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to let this happen to us? You're sovereign. How long, long sovereign, Lord? Lord, you're sovereign over heaven and earth. And they had just worshipped God in heaven. They had worshipped Christ in heaven. How long, sovereign Lord, 
until you set this right. When are you going to judge the people who've killed us? And when are you going to deliver your people from further death? How long, O oh Lord? Now, in the Ugandan account, there was a positive answer. The Christian leaders got together and they went through town after town, region after region, and prayed where these altars had been set up and tore down the altars. And they saw Joseph Kony's force, his power, being rendered, being nullified. But it doesn't always work out that way. I went to seminary in the 1970s, and we had a, a famous pastor from Uganda at our seminary. I mean, he'd had a megachurch in Uganda, but he had to flee. Because there was a crazy man in Uganda, the leader, called Idi Amin. Now, Idi Amin had sent some henchmen to this guy's church. Four men came in and saw him in the, in the church office after he got done with the sermon and said, we've been sent to kill you. Do you have any last words? And so Kefa Sampangi said, I'm going to die, but let me help you not die, and told them the gospel. So a couple of them there repented, converted, whatever. They left. The four of them left, and they left him alone. So he had to flee the country with his wife and children. Because already the Anglican Archbishop of Uganda had already been killed. So Kefa Sampangi knew it was his turn next. And so he left the country and came to seminary. That was in the 1970s. Now, Idi Amin, in the course of 1971 to 1979, Idi Amin killed, or his forces killed, about 300,000 Ugandans or more. Slaughtered them. Killed people out in the street. Important people, unimportant people. Just yank them out of the houses, strip them naked, and kill them in the town square just to terrorize everybody. 300,000. And don't you suppose they asked... An Anglican archbishop, the pastor of a Presbyterian megachurch, don't you suppose they asked, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? But it took nine years before Tanzania invaded Uganda and with the Ugandan rebels overthrew Idi Amin's regime. And then all Idi Amin did was he trotted off to Saudi Arabia to live in exile until he died after maybe 30 more years? How long, O oh Lord? How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? Then after I finished that grad school, I went on to a school in Australia, and the, the, my neighbor, the guy who lived next door to me for a couple of years, was also a pastor from Uganda. And you know, as we lived next door to each other, and because of the, I had this interest, so we would, we would talk daily. And finally, he said, I can't, I, don't ask me anymore about Uganda. He said, I can't bear to talk about it. He had left, but his sister was still in Uganda. Now, the sister managed to flee to Kenya. But there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Ugandans had fled to Kenya. And I knew somebody who was an ambassador for the country of Argentina, who was living, who was an, Argentina's ambassador to Kenya. And so I... I contacted him to see if he could do anything to help this one woman. And he said, look, he said, there's hundreds of thousands of these refugees. And he said, I have to do what's good for Argentina. I can't help. And my friend couldn't stand the thought anymore of talking about what would become of his sister or the rest of his family who was still back in Uganda. How long, sovereign Lord, 
holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And after Idi Amin finally left power, then Obote, Idi Amin had overthrown Obote, then after Idi Amin, Obote came back in, and he was as corrupt as he'd ever been, and chaos and violence reigned as much as it ever had. And then after that, I lost track, but the LRA eventually sprung up in northern Uganda. And the question comes, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And sometimes the answer is God's people get together and they pray. And God answers and delivers. And he avenges. He overthrows the guilty regime and he delivers the persecuted. Sometimes. But not always. And he did not in Revelation. Take a look at God's answer to this question. Revelation chapter 6, verse 11. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And here's the answer they received. Each of them was given a white robe. These are the martyrs who've already died. Each of them was given a white robe, and they were told... To wait a little longer. What was God's answer? Not yet. How long, O Lord? Sovereign, holy and true. Not yet. Each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer. Until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had was completed until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had was completed. You see that? The passive tense. Until the number of, uh, until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed. The passive tense in scripture is often a reference to God's sovereignty. What God is saying here is, when will they be delivered? When will the nations be judged? When will the persecuted be delivered? Only once those I've designated to be killed are killed. God is not responsible for the killing. But what this text is saying is that God is sovereign. And in his sovereignty, there are some who are going to die. It's not because of his sovereignty they die. But in his sovereignty, there are some who are going to die. And God is not going to judge the nations. And he's not going to deliver the persecuted until those who've been designated for death, for martyrdom, are actually die, have actually died. Each of them was given a, a white robe and they were told to wait a little while longer. Now this is only the first part of the answer. There's four more parts of this answer in this chapter and I'm going to skim through them really quickly. If you want to see the rest of it, it's in that devotional. Don't read it now. You can read it during the week. God doesn't just say, wait a little longer. Wait a little longer. He gives four more parts to this answer. The answer actually has two parts, and each of those parts has two pieces. God does say, in the rest of this chapter, God just says, Look, I will avenge. 
And he describes, first of all, how he's going to avenge in the short term. And he describes then how he's going to avenge at the end of time. God says, I will take revenge. I will avenge. I I will punish those who've done this. Not yet, but I will. I'll do some punishing now, and I'll do the massive punishing at the end of time. And, And then God says to them, and I will preserve my people. I'll preserve them now. And I'll bring them home to glory at the end of time. He gives these four answers to expand his basic point. And you can read about it in the devotional. Obviously, you can read about it in the biblical text. But the main point is this. The main point, not yet. God is sovereign. But the nations will rant. And people will, Christians will die. Not yet. And the question really for them when they read this is, is this answer sufficient? Is it enough to know that God is sovereign, but he's not going to intervene on our behalf? What do you do with that? Is it any help to know that God has the situation under control if he's not going to step in and make our lives easy? Can you live with that? What do you do about that? Does it help to know that your fate is in the hands of the God who loves you, not in the hands of the enemies who are trying to kill you? Does that help if you're going to die anyway? Does it help? What can we pull from Revelation 6, 9 to 11? The promise that God is sovereign and yet I'll still die. That's the message of these first few verses in Revelation chapter 6. What do you do with that? He goes on to say, I will punish your persecutors in this life and eternity. I will preserve my people in this life and eternity. But for the moment, what he's telling them is, I will not stop this persecution. I will not stop this destruction. Is that enough? What do you do with it? Take a look at their question in chapter 6, verse 9. Or take a look at their description in chapter 6, verse 9. I saw under this altar the souls of those who had been slain. Why were they slain? They were slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They were slain for two reasons. Because they'd stood for God and they spoke up in God's name. Where have we seen that language before? The word of God and the testimony. Do you remember in Revelation where we've seen that? We've seen it once already. Revelation chapter 1 verse 2. The very beginning of the book. As the author John looks up in heaven and he sees Jesus. And how does he describe Jesus? Jesus who was slain. Why was Jesus slain? Because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Jesus was slain because he stood for the word of God and gave testimony to God. These believers are being slain because they stood for the word of God and gave testimony to God. And this is 
John's point to them. This is what happened to Jesus. And now it's happening to you. Sometimes God delivers us. But sometimes God calls us to walk the same path that Jesus walked. And can we say to him, this path is too hard. Jesus didn't say to him, this path is too hard. And because Jesus walked this same path, we have the promise that our lives, our faith can be preserved in this life and we'll make it to heaven in the end. See, the, the promise of revelation is not that the powerful, sovereign God will always intervene to make his people's lives better. The promise of revelation is that we can walk the path that Jesus walked and our faith can be preserved and we will make it into his presence at the end of time. That's the only promise. Maybe God will do other things for us and give us comfortable lives like we enjoy and peaceful futures like we want. But maybe this is all he'll do. As we stand for the word of God and offer our testimony to his grace. Maybe all he'll do for us is what he did for Jesus. Wait a little longer until those who've been determined to die, die. And then I will avenge you. And then I will preserve you. Then I will honor you. Maybe Jesus will call some of us to follow the path he walked. And God will be sovereign and will walk that path. He doesn't promise us an easy life. But we have in front of us Jesus who walked this same path. Whose name in the end was vindicated. And whose suffering will one day be avenged. This at least we can promise from Revelation. And this can be enough for us. Because it was enough for Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we think of these believers in Uganda who still suffer from their memories and even now suffer from still from chaos in that country. We think of the persecuted church around the world, knowing how easy we have it. And any stresses we face are small compared to theirs. Father, in our small way, may we trust you. May it be enough for us that you promise to avenge any suffering we endure and to preserve us safe at last. And we ask for your grace to be upon your persecuted church around the world, that this might be enough for them, that your son walked this path before them and for them. We ask for your grace to be on us and on your church that suffers. In Jesus' name, amen.